0: It has been said that biblical characters are not given to us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. We do not look into the pages of Scripture in order to find exemplary examples after which we model our life, for we only have one model, and that is the Lord Jesus. But when we peer into the pages of Scripture, those Scripture passages serve as a mirror that reflects the twisted totality of of the depravity of humanity. Today we come to one of the most gruesome chapters in all the Bible. We continue our sermon series entitled, Faith, a Study in the Life of Abraham. And the passage that confronts us this morning is purely perverted. Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 to 29 Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the pleasure of God's holy, precious word. Genesis chapter 19. Let me begin at verse 1. I'll read through verse 29. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them. He shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. You can do what you like with them, but don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. They said, this fellow came here as an alien. Now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot. Move forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against his people is so great, he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to be married to his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord's about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hands and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back, don't stop anywhere in the plain, flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, Your servant has found favor in your eyes. You've shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I can't do anything until you reach it. That's why the town was called Zoar. And by the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities, all the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back. She became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain. He saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. He brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah has become the poster child to describe how God deals with unrepentant sinners. For anyone in the crowd who questions the historicity or the authenticity of this story, let me just remind you that on a couple of occasions, Jesus referenced Sodom and Gomorrah in his ministry. Once comes in the Gospel of Luke, another comes in the Gospel of Matthew. In Luke, the Lord says, the day that Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from the heavens. In Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus sends out the disciples, he tells them, if you go to a house or to a town that does not welcome you, then shake the dust off your sandals and move on from there. For it'll be better on the day of judgment for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Jesus affirmed that this is not a fable, this is a fact. You may recall that three visitors appeared to Abraham. One was the Lord Jesus, he was flanked on his right and his left by two of his messengers or angels. It is the Lord who dispatched the angels in our passage, moved them towards the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to do there what the Lord had instructed them to do. We are told that when the two visitors arrived at the city gate, they found Lot seated at the entrance of the gate. That little statement that Lot was seated at the city gate tells us a lot about Lot. It tells us that Lot was fully entrenched in the culture of Sodom. The last time we picture Lot was in Genesis chapter 13. He and Uncle Abraham had had a little family feud because their flocks were getting so large. So Abraham said to his nephew Lot, you go any direction you want to, and I will go in the opposite direction. And in Genesis 13, we read that Lot went towards the lush plains of the valley, and he pitched his tent near Sodom. But now, six chapters have passed. Probably about 15 years have come and gone. And Lot has exchanged his temporary housing outside the city gate to a permanent residence within the confines of Sodom. The reason we know this is because on at least four occasions, we read something about the door of the house of Lot. So the Temporary housing was exchanged for something more permanent. The tent that was located outside of Sodom was exchanged for a permanent house on Main Street right there at the city street in Sodom and Gomorrah. Every city of any size in antiquity would oftentimes build a wall around its parameters to keep the enemy away. And typically, most cities had one gate. It served as the entrance and the exit through which everyone would travel in and out of that city. At the city gate, there was important business that was always transacted. In fact, the most important business was always undertaken there at the city gate. It was there that cases were tried, it was there that the prominent elders actually took up seats at the city gate. This is where we find Lot. He is seated at the city gate. He probably is a wealthy business owner, or he could be an elected politician, or he may be an appointed judge, regardless, he has thrown away his temporary outskirt living of Sodom, and now he is dwelling in Sodom. He's entrenched in their culture. He is identified as a prominent figure in Sodom, so he has a proper seat at the city gate. This tells us a lot about Lot. You know, what happened to Lot could happen to you or to me. It's what happens to anybody when there's unchecked sin that goes on in your life. At first, you're on the outskirts. At first, it's, it's an arm stretch away. But if it goes on and festers for long, it can overtake you and you can become entrenched in it and you'll find yourself seated right there in the midst of immorality. This is exactly what happens to Lot. The two visitors appear. In good Near Eastern fashion, Lot jumps to his feet, extends hospitality, Lot knows what happens at night in Sodom. So he says to his visitors, please come and uh, spend the night in my house. I'll prepare you a meager meal. I'll let you shower. The next morning you can get up and be on your way. And the angels, the messengers, they said, no, we'll stay in the city square. Lot says, no, no, you cannot do that. You must stay in my house. He pleaded. They obliged. They went into his house. Sometime after dinner, but before going to bed, we are told that all the men from every part of the city, both young and old, converged around Lot's house. And they demanded of Lot, where are the men who came to visit you? And before a reply could be given, they shout, bring them out to us so that we may have sex with them. The words jump off the page, don't they? They startle you as the reader. It catches you off guard. I mean, up until now, all we've known about Sodom and Gomorrah is that the men who live there are wicked, but we don't know what their wickedness looks like. Up until now, all we've been told is that they have sinned uh, greatly before the Lord and it's so grievous that the Lord himself had come down and he was going to see what was going on and deal decisively as a righteous judge, but we don't know what's been going on until we get to Genesis chapter 19 and the words jump off the page and the words make us uncomfortable and they shock us when these men cry out, you bring them out to us so that we may have sex with them. Now we know in vile, vivid detail the reason why God has to show up. The author wants us to know that all the men from every part of the town had gathered there. Men from uptown and downtown and midtown and just out of town. All the men were there. We could contemporize it and say that men from Homewood and Hoover and Mountain Brook and trustful and gardendale and Inslee and pelham and alabaster and helena all the men converged like a pack of wolves around the home of lot the description is so vile that it even tells us men who were both young and old how old are these old men well the word that's translated old it means that they're really old some of these guys probably came on walkers and in wheelchairs They're old men. How young are these men? Well, the word that's translated young is a very broad term. Some have understood it to describe a man in his early 20s. Other people have rendered the word to describe a young teenager. And still others have used this word and described it as a boy that we would call a fifth grader. The portrait is vile. The the indecency is multi-generational. Apparently, this is not the exception. This is the norm. This is how these guys got their kicks on Friday night. This was their form of entertainment and their form of pleasure. Pleasure. Apparently, after dinner, grandpa, dad, and junior would jump up from the table, and they would go to the designated house, wherever it had been located, for the homosexual orgy to take place that night, and this is how these guys got their entertainment in Sodom and Gomorrah. And this was not abnormal for them. This was normal behavior in their city and in their region. And now you begin to understand why the outcry had reached the ears of the Lord. Oh, so much pain, so much brokenness. If you're asking yourself, where are the police officers? Well, apparently they're in on it too. All the men from every part of the city, both young and old, converged around the house. Everybody's in on it. I'm sure that some of those men they went just to watch they went to observe still other men went to participate imagine it didn't start out this vile but once again isn't that what sin does it grows in intensity it grows in its far reaching perversion into every nook and cranny of your life and our culture They demanded you bring these men out to us. It's Lot who steps outside the door. He shuts it behind him, and Lot says, Friends, don't do this wicked thing. Now, I don't know if friends is just a term of endearment, or if he's really looking in their eyes and saying, Hey, I know you, you're my friend. If it's really a friend of Lot, then doesn't this say something derogatory about the demeanor and the disposition of, oh boy, Lot? Friends, don't do this wicked thing. Now before we come down too hard on Lot, let it be known that he did accurately describe what was about to take place. He called this homosexuality a wicked thing. You know, every society known to man has agreed with Lot. Every society in in all of history has agreed with Lot that homosexuality is a wicked thing. And consistently, God's people have always agreed with the conclusion of Lot. I mean, God's people have always agreed that this is a wicked thing. It was Moses who codified this when he wrote Leviticus. And it says that if a man lies with another man as a man lies with a woman, what both of those men have done is detestable in the sight of God. To the person who thinks, well, that's the God of the Old Testament, that's just in the Old Testament law. That's not uh, who we are, for we are New Testament believers. Let me tell you that the message throughout all of Scripture has been singular and consistent. For in Romans chapter 1, it's the Apostle Paul who speaks to that church. And says God gave them over to their shameful lust. Women exchanged natural uh, relationships with other women. And men exchanged natural relations with women for unnatural relations with men. Men committed indecent acts with other men, and they received in their bodies due penalty for their perversion. The message of the scripture is consistent. The message of the Bible is singular when it comes to this topic of homosexuality. It agrees with Lot that this is a wicked thing. All of society has agreed with Lot throughout all the ages. All the church has agreed with Lot throughout all the ages until recently. It's only in these last years that societies have embraced homosexuality as permissible. It's only in these recent years that this has been a debate in the church. Now, I find myself to be, try to be a reasonable man, but for the life of me, I can't understand the argument within the confines of the church and the people of God because consistently, all throughout the Bible, the sovereign one did not stutter. He's not confused on this issue. He is clearly proclaiming that this is a wicked thing. It has always been wicked in the sight of God, and it always will be wicked in the sight of God. And it's only in these days, in these most recent hours, that this is debated in society, in humanity, and even in the church, where godly people are ordained as homosexual priests and priestesses, and same-sex marriage is observed as acceptable. Now, church, I realize, today I am not being politically correct. But you need to know That I've never made it my aim to be a preacher who is politically correct. I have made it my aim to be a preacher who is biblically correct. And I also understand that there just might be some people in this crowd who struggle with homosexuality. I realize that you may have sons and daughters, cousins and aunts and uncles, coworkers and neighbors, classmates and teammates who struggle with this issue of homosexuality. And they have voluntarily embraced that lifestyle as normal and acceptable in the sight of God. And you may want to say to me, Preacher, we're called to love all people. And I agree with you completely. We are commissioned and compelled and called to love all people. But that call to love all people in no way is a compromise of our convictions upon the scripture upon which we take our stand. Lot is accurate. Don't do this wicked thing. But before we crown Lot as the king of conservatism, did you hear what he said next? Lot said, I've got two daughters who've never slept with a man. I will gladly bring them out to you. You can do to them whatever you wish, but you cannot have these two male visitors. What kind of a dim-witted, half-brained dad would make such a suggestion? As parents, it is our task to protect our children, not serve them up on a platter. What what person would do this? I've tried to look at this story from multiple angles. I've tried to look at it from, from different vantage points. And from every angle, I come to the same conclusion. Here's the conclusion. Lot is loony. He is an idiot, right? I know that he's righteous. I've read 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. I know it declares him to be innocent in the sight of God. I know that he's righteous. I know that he has a righteous soul. I know that he's innocent, but he is innocently an idiot in the sight of the watching world. He needs to be strung up by his toenails, shot in his kneecaps so it's really painful, have all his fingernails pulled out, and then somebody shoot him upside the forehead. That's what he deserves. What dad in his right mind would make this suggestion? As I think about it a little bit more, I then realize that there might just be a lot of people in the church today that look like light. What I mean is this. There are a lot of people that will stand up and condemn homosexuality. And in the very next breath, they'll turn a blind eye to the heterosexual sin of their choosing. There are a lot of people who look like Lot. Did I tell you that biblical characters are not given to us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity? There are a lot of lots in the church today. People who will stand up against homosexuality and say how bad it is, how vile it is, what a wicked thing that it is. And then in the very next breath, they will turn a blind eye towards the heterosexual sin of their choosing. Homosexuality in the church is a problem. It is. But heterosexual sin in the church is an epidemic. How else do we explain how, quote unquote, godly people can be so involved in adultery or pornography? How do we explain the frequency of sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, sex after your first and second, but before your third marriage? How do we explain spouse swapping? How do we explain technical virginity, which means that everything's permissible, shy of intercourse? How do we talk about and explain friends with benefits? I'll tell you how we explain it. We explain it because there are a lot of lots in the church today. People who stand against homosexuality, but then turn a blind eye to the heterosexual sin of their choosing. This is exactly what lot does. This is exactly what far too many people of God do today. When Lot pulled out the moral card and he said, this is a wicked thing. You know what the the men of the city did? They laughed at him. They said, you're a joke. Who do you think you are to tell us what's morally right or wrong? Apparently there was something inconsistent in the lifestyle of Lot. Apparently there was something in his life where people in the crowd said, who do you think you are to tell us what is morally right? Listen, this guy is a foreigner, which is, he's an alien, and now he's coming to play the judge. You get out of our way, or we're gonna do to you worse than what we're gonna do to those guys. The culture of Sodom thought Lot was a joke. Can I tell you, church, the last thing I want is for my culture to look at me, or to look at you, and say, you are a joke. You call yourself a Christian. You say you stand up for what's pure and righteous. Yet I see how you live. You are a joke. They start laughing at Lot. The last thing I want, church, is to stand before a watching world or for you to stand before a watching world. And they look at the inconsistency of our lifestyle and they say, who do you think you are to play a moral card? You are a laughingstock. You are a joke. They press in against Lot All of a sudden the door opens and the angels reach out. They pull Lot back in and they slam the door. And they cause temporary blindness to fall on all those men outside of Lot's house. This is bedlam that's breaking out. I mean, you got guys, they got one thing on their mind. They're coming close to the door and all of a sudden they're blind. And then they start groping. For the door. And then they start groping their way back. Guys, we're about to have a bar fight that's gonna break out. Now, I don't know what a bar fight looks like personally, but I've seen one on television. I mean, we're gonna have guys swinging and flailing, right? I mean, we've got guys that are blind and they got one thing on their mind and they're just groping and trying to get out of there, right? This is exactly what's going on. There's bedlam on the outside, there's bedlam on the inside. The angel says to Lot, Do you have anybody in this town that belongs to you? Sons-in-laws, daughter-in-laws, sons, daughters, cousins, neighbors, dogs, whatever. Do you have anybody? And Lot says, yeah. These two daughters are engaged. The angel must go, what? What? These are engaged daughters? You're just going to serve them up on a platter? What's wrong with you? Go get your sons-in-law. So Lot goes back outside. He can navigate the crowd. Why? He's the only one who can see. Everybody else is blind. He can duck and dodge and make his way through. He goes up to his sons-in-law. I wonder where he found them. They're probably not far outside the door. All the men from every part of town, both young and old, surrounded the house. Lot says to them, hurry, you've got to get out. God is about to destroy this city. And the sons-in-law said to daddy Lot, You must be kidding me. You're a joke. We didn't even know that you knew God. We didn't even know that you knew him on a first name basis. We're shocked that God would even talk to you. And the sons-in-law, who must be angry, put yourself in their sandals. They just heard their future daddy-in-law serve up their future wives on a platter to give to this mob. What do you think they want to do to Lot? They must be furious. You're a joke. You're an idiot. The last thing I want is for people to look at us and call us a joke. By the way, have I told you the biblical characters are not given to us as models for morality but rather as mirrors for identity? I have shared that with you, right? Lot goes back in the house empty-handed. And the angels say, "Hurry. You've got to get out." And in verse 16, Lot hesitates. Are you kidding me? I mean, this city's about to be blown up. Fire and is about to fall. The angels of God, who just inflicted a whole mob with blindness, they say to you, you've got to hurry and get out. And Lot just kind of twiddles his thumbs. In verse 16, he hesitates. Church, can I ask you a question? Why? do we not respond with a sense of urgency when the word of God is given to us? Why do we hesitate? The word of God is given through the messengers of God. It says, hurry and get out of here. And Lot has the audacity to hesitate. And then they say, listen, we're gonna make this simple for you. We're gonna give you three commands. Flee the city, don't look back, run to the mountains seems clear enough, right? Straightforward, simple. There are three. Flee the city. Don't look back and run to the mountains. And then the angels take Lot and Mrs. Lot and the two daughters by hand and they lead them out. They point them in the right direction. Go over there. And as you go, I want you to flee the city. Don't look back and run to the mountain. And in verse 18, Lot begins to negotiate. (laughs) What? Uh, I don't think I can get over there to that mountain. I've got a sciatic nerve and it's really giving me fits. I got my left knee and it needs to be replaced. I don't think I can make it quite over there for the sulfur to come. Here's a small city. Can I go there? And the angel must have said, sure, just get out of here. I can't do anything until you leave. What audacity. The word of God comes... And Lot hesitates, and then he tries to negotiate. What is he thinking? Oh, yeah, have I told you? The biblical characters are not given to us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. They're running out of the city. And all of a sudden, poor Mrs. Lot, she looks back, Why are you looking back? Clearly, there are three imperatives. It is flee the city, don't look back, and run to the mountains. Mrs. Lott, why are you turning around? Why are you looking back? Wouldn't you think that she would be the first one on the bus to get out of town? This is a vile place. This is a horrible city. You would think that she would be the first one leading the charge out of the city. Why does she look back? Well, You can take the woman out of Sodom, but you can't take Sodom out of the woman. You see, Lot was probably inconsistent in his lifestyle. But he was one who was seated at the city gate. He had money. He had possessions. He had things. There was nothing that Mrs. Lot wanted that she did not have. And when she heard the explosions and when she heard the fire falling and when she heard the screams, she looked back because back there represented all of her comfortable, convenient lifestyle and all of her possessions. And she looked back and she was turned into a pillar of salt. The Lord Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You can't have one leg that's running towards the Savior and one leg that's running back towards sin. Have you ever tried to do that? Not only will you split your pants, but you'll condemn your soul. You cannot have one leg running towards the Savior and one leg running towards sin. Mrs. Lott was turned into a pillar of salt. Most believe that the geographical location of Sodom and Gomorrah is present day portions of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea gets its name because of the salt content of the water. It is so salty that nothing can live in it. No vegetation, no animal. And many believe that's the location of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham wakes up. He looks down over the plain and there is dense smoke that's rising, like, like that of a furnace. And he realizes that God who made a promise, made good on the promise. God said, if there are 10 righteous people, I'll spare the city. There weren't even 10, maybe a handful. And God made good on his promise. He destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and he rescued the righteous remnant of that city, Lot and his family. Because the God who makes a promise will make good on the promise. You can take him at his word. You can trust what he says because he never is a God of confusion. He's a God of clarity. So, what do you do with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, most of us, when we read this story, we think to ourselves, uh, what is going to happen to our city? What's going to happen to our culture? What's going to happen to our country? There have been more than one person who has said to me that if God somehow spares America, then God owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. I mean, let's just think about it. Uh, America is as immoral, it's unprecedented that today same sex marriage is legal in all 50 states. Traditional marriage is unraveling at a pace of 50%. For one out of every two marriages ends in divorce or separation. The use of pornography is so widespread that nobody knows its far-reaching effects even yet. Immorality, adultery, fornication. so prevalent. What's going to happen to America? I don't know. I don't know. I do know that the world is going the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. I just look around and see it. You do too. I don't know what's going to happen. But I think the better question is this. You come through this story and you must ask yourself, how much personal sin are you going to tolerate in your life? How much personal sin are you going to tolerate in your life? What the Lord said to Lot and his family, the Lord still says to you and to me. The commands are simple. Flee sin, don't look back, and run to the mountain. You know, it is not by accident that Jesus was crucified on a mountain. It is not by accident, for Mount Calvary stands at the apex of a landscape of all of Scripture. It is not by accident that Jesus stumbled and staggered outside the streets of Jerusalem with a crossbeam attached to his back, and he went to the uh, skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, and he went to Mount Calvary, and there he died in your place and in my place. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity, and all the punishment of God was placed squarely upon the shoulders of Jesus, and to is the very same message that you and I are to flee sin. Don't look back and run to the mountain of God. You and I run to Mount Calvary. For that's the only place we find hope and healing. So if there's anyone who's struggling with homosexuality, this morning, please hear the urgent word to flee sin. Don't look back. And run to the mountain. For anyone here caught in the web of pornography, flee sin, don't look back, and run to the mountain. Anyone who is flirting with adultery, flee sin, don't look back, and run to the mountain. Anyone who's caught up in an adulterous affair on this day, flee sin. Don't look back and run to the mountain. Whether your sin looks like the sin of Lot, whether your sin looks like the sin of Mrs. Lot, whether your sin is not even mentioned here, but it's greed or gossip or slander or robbery, whatever it is this morning, flee sin. Don't look back and run to the mountain of God. For there is a fountain that's filled with blood and is drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood and they lose all of their guilty stains the dying thief rejoices to see that fountain in its day and there may I though vile as he wash all of my sins away this morning I want to tell you that the savior is sweeter than your sin this morning I want to tell you the savior is stronger than your sin this morning I want to tell you that the savior is more satisfying than your sin so on this day I want you to flee your sin run to the mountain and don't look back And on this day, don't hesitate. And don't try to negotiate with the Word of God or the God of the Word. Today, flee sin. Don't look back. Run to the mountain of God. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. And Father... We ask for you to capture our attention this day. Help us to respond with urgency to your very word. We give you this invitation. We pray it in Christ's name. And all God's people said.